Content warning. The following episode discusses mature themes, including illicit drug use and graphic details of murder. Listener discretion is advised. Full disclosure, in my well over 30 years of living life, I have never partaken in illicit drugs. I've never been militant about it or straight edge. I'm not that kind of person. I've went to my share of parties in the past and I know what certain drugs, particularly cannabis or weed, look and smell like. So I'm not completely clueless about them. But weed and other illegal substances in general have never been something I've had any interest in. And maybe some of that has to do with how I grew up. My dad was a clinical psychologist by trade. He worked for the state of Michigan doing social work for the last 10 years of his life. But at one point growing up, this was during the early to mid 1990s, he worked for a private mental health consulting company that was contracted with one of the big three automakers. He counseled plant workers who were struggling with substance abuse and were referred to him by the union as a mental health professional with a background in addiction counseling. So he felt very strongly about drugs. He warned my siblings and me of the dangers of drugs. Even weed was bad, and he saw it as a gateway to harder, more dangerous drugs like crack, PCP, or heroin. So one time, it was the 4th of July fireworks in the city of Detroit. It was in the early 1990s. I believe I was a preteen at the time. So to see the fireworks, my dad drove our family to this empty parking lot along the Detroit River which was near Belle Isle, an island that is part of the city. The parking lot was abandoned. Whatever business it was supposed to serve had been closed and torn down so long ago, you would never know it ever belonged to anything. As the parking lot got filled up with other cars, with people getting ready to see the fireworks, this organic burning smell filled the air. I had smelled things burn before, but never a smell like that. So I asked my dad what it was, and he told me it was weed. That was the first time I ever smelled weed. As I got older and I started dating, this was towards the end of high school, I once dated a guy that was into doing drugs. At the time, he did a lot of drugs, but his drugs of choice were weed and mescaline. Mescaline is a hallucinogen. The relationship was not healthy, and it wasn't just because of the drugs, but that didn't help. A square dating someone who's always high is not the best combination. Of course, I didn't tell my parents much about him or even brought him around them. But since he and I worked together, my dad saw him once, and later on, he had a talk with me to where he told me he was able to figure out what drugs he used just by looking at him. Not great. As I've gotten older, while I've stayed drug free, or at least free from illicit drugs and addictive medications, my view on how we approach drugs has deviated a great deal from the perspective of my father. And in this series on America's drug war, I hope you will begin to understand why. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast.
This is the first episode of a series on the war on drugs. I expect this to be a four-part series, but we'll see where it goes. The episodes will not be all in a row. I'll probably plug in an episode or two on some different topics to break it up a bit. But the reason why it's going to be such a long series is there's a lot of information out there about U.S. drug policy. And of course, I can't cover all of it. But there are so many important details that this will need to be a multi-parter to do it justice. The war on drugs refers to the decades-long fight the United States government has waged against substances it has made illegal. According to the Center for American Progress, since 1980, the number of Americans arrested for drug possession has tripled, spiking at 1.3 million arrests in 2015. One-fifth of inmates are incarcerated for drug-related offenses, with another 1.15 million convicted of drug offenses on probation or parole. Black Americans are four times as likely as white Americans to be arrested for charges related to cannabis, and even though drug use among black people is proportionate to our overall share of the U.S. population, 12.5%, and are no more likely to use drugs as our white peers, we are more likely to be arrested and six times more likely to be convicted of drug crimes and much more likely to be affected by mandatory minimum sentences. The war on drugs has cost the United States an estimated $1 trillion since 1971. It has led to instability in communities here in the U.S. and wars in countries abroad. The war on drugs has, ironically, contributed to epidemics of substance abuse and related issues that have ruined the lives of individuals, families, and communities. I want to talk about various aspects of the drug war, including the history, methods and punishments, the effects, both good and bad, and solutions. I want to talk about who it affects, and I want to float around the idea of ending the drug war altogether. What would that look like? This episode will be the story of what began the war on drugs. First, let's talk about what we mean by drugs. Drugs are any chemical, natural or synthetic, that has physiological effects on the body. Now, today, there are drugs that are legal, drugs that are regulated to some degree, and illegal or illicit drugs. And even this continuum is pretty simplified. There are gray area drugs, such as marijuana or cannabis, which is illegal on a federal level and in many states, but is steadily being decriminalized or even legalized in a number of U.S. states. Now, how did we get here? It's pretty complicated because different classes of drugs have had different histories in the U.S., but to put it as simply as possible, there was a time in the United States when the government simply did not regulate drugs. There was a time when you could obtain weed, hemp, narcotics, and opiates over-the-counter. Coca-Cola was made with actual cocaine, and babies were given medicine laced with morphine to treat colic. To understand how the war on drugs began, we got to go back in time and talk about a war against a different drug, alcohol. Prohibition refers to a period in the early 20th century when the manufacture, transportation, and sale of alcohol was made illegal in the United States. The drivers that led to prohibition 
included religious revivalism, the temperance movement, and immigration. In the early 1800s, the Second Great Awakening, an evangelical Protestant religious revival, swept the nation. Revivals can be defined as movements focused on spiritual restoration within a society or among church congregations, which can have local, national, or global impact. Revivals generally sprout up as conservative religious pushback from progressive reforms within societies. The Second Great Awakening, in particular, was a reaction to a period of American Enlightenment in early America, particularly the rise of deism, rationalism, and intellectualism. Interestingly enough, characteristics that can be found in many of our country's founders, such as Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. The Second Great Awakening peaked in the 1820s and 1830s, dying down in the 1840s. But some of the effects were longer lasting. The African Methodist Episcopal Church grew out of this movement due to discrimination within the Methodist denomination, and slaves who were part of the movement pushed for their freedom, which led to increased crackdowns on slave gatherings by whites in the South, adding to the growing tensions in the U.S. over the slavery question that culminated in the Civil War. What also came from the Second Great Awakening were Christian sects and theological strains that persist to this day, including the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the theory of dispensationalism, which I get more in-depth about in this month's Patreon bonus episode. Check out flymachine.network support for more. Now, for the purposes of our discussion, a development arising from the Second Awakening was support for the temperance movement. The temperance movement was aimed at curbing drunkenness on moral and health-related grounds. The Industrial Revolution, with the concerns related to the use of heavy machinery, also fed into this movement. And within this movement, there were those who supported moderation in drinking, while others preached full abstinence. The temperance movement is often known as a WASP-driven movement, and in a lot of ways it was. The Second Great Awakening led to many white Protestants joining and becoming recognized leaders in the movement. But the temperance movement itself really began with Native Americans. While there is a widespread belief that Native Americans are genetically predisposed to alcoholism, which is a key component of what are called firewater myths, hasn't been enough research to conclusively prove this or outline a specific genetic component that makes Native Americans predisposed to alcoholism. Unfortunately, this myth has historically been cited as rationale for the U.S. government to discriminate against Native Americans as it relates to alcohol-related policy and their overall rights, and has also been internalized by some Native Americans who are battling alcoholism. But how alcoholism became a major issue in Native American tribes can be traced back to the 1700s. During this time, many Native American tribes or nations would receive alcohol as payment from white settlers for fur or other wares. According to addiction researchers Don Coyas and William White, some tribes did brew and use alcohol, along with other drugs, prior to European contact without negative effects. 
But what led to alcohol abuse becoming a serious issue among Native Americans coincided with later attacks, slaughter, and oppression at the hands of white settlers, and later the U.S. government. The researchers argued that alcohol became a tool of economic, social, and sexual exploitation. And while there does not appear to be an ethnic component to predisposition to alcoholism, alcoholism does tend to run in families, which may be environmental rather than biological. Even in the early to mid-1700s, Native American leaders such as Peter Chartier, Neolin, and King Hagler became early temperance activists, protesting the flooding of their tribes with liquor to curb alcohol abuse. Yet despite their efforts, tribes still encountered these issues, which disintegrated Native cultures with a harmful legacy up through the present day. But while Native Americans were the originators of the temperance movement, it was overtaken by white Protestant activists by the early to mid-1800s, who focused on drying out society as a whole for religious and societal reasons. The temperance movement later dovetailed with the women's suffrage movement, as many women suffragists, such as Susan B. Anthony and Lucy Stone, were also supporters of the temperance movement. Many of these women involved in the temperance movement linked issues such as domestic violence, sexually transmitted diseases, financial ruin, and family abandonment with alcohol abuse in men. And yet another driver for these temperance policies was immigration. Between 1892 and 1920, almost 12 million immigrants entered the United States through the port at Ellis Island in New York City. During the late 1800s and early 1900s, waves of immigrants from a number of European countries, such as Ireland, Germany, Italy, and other parts of Southern Europe, were arriving in the United States. Many of these new arrivals were Roman Catholic and came from cultures where drinking was socially acceptable. This led to the increased popularity of saloons and breweries. That said, drinking was not unique to these new European arrivals, as Americans of all socioeconomic classes enjoyed their booze. But the German breweries, Irish saloons, and German beer halls, as well as the Roman Catholicism that many of these new arrivals shared that included real alcohol as part of mass, were all looked down upon by nativist white Americans as reasons for these immigrants' supposed immorality, lawlessness, and inferiority. This led to the rise of the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. The first iteration rose during Reconstruction after the Civil War, and their focus was on terrorizing Black Americans, including newly freed slaves, and restoring the social order in the South. The second KKK was founded in 1915, and while they were still anti-Black, their list of targets were expanded to include Roman Catholics and Jews. This expanded focus also meant that there was expanded appeal for members beyond the South. This would have been the same clan that Fred Trump, father of current occupier of the Oval Office, Donald Trump, participated in when arrested during a Klan march in New York City in 1927. This xenophobic, anti-immigrant sentiment particularly against German Americans, gained strength during the First World War from 1914 through 1918, U.S. participation beginning in 1917. Temperance was also used during the war as a propaganda tool, 
painting drunkenness as a foe in the war effort, encouraging soldiers to abstain from alcohol. Besides the focus on the drinking habits of recent European immigrants and U.S. soldiers, many white Southerners tied access to alcohol to racist beliefs that black men would lose their inhibitions while drunk and rape white women. So by the late 19-teens, the temperance movement at this point was made up of moral crusaders, women suffragists, and bigoted nativists. And this coalition went on to do big things. During the mid to late 1800s, some states and localities passed temperance laws banning alcohol to varying amounts of success. But in the early 20th century, the banning of alcohol became a national crusade, with the end game being an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The goal was to ratify a new amendment prior to the 1920 U.S. Census, which would reflect the shift in demographics due to the influx in European immigrants and was expected to shift the balance of power so that naturalized immigrants and second-generation Americans from these communities would be represented in their true numbers. Temperance activists believed that the upcoming demographic shift would make it impossible to pass a prohibition amendment. So an amendment was rushed through for congressional and state approval. In 1919, the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified to be enacted a year later in 1920. This amendment prohibited the manufacture, transport, and sale of alcoholic beverages. It did not ban the possession or consumption of alcoholic beverages. So the alcohol that was in a household's possession prior to the ban could be kept at home and consumed. There are also three other loopholes to the Prohibition Amendment. Loopholes that allowed a limited amount of alcohol to be manufactured during crop preservation, sold for medicinal use, and obtained for religious ceremonies. So farmers could ferment drinks such as Applejack from preserved fruit, and individuals with prescriptions could still obtain their medicine, and people could go to religious services and get their drink fix. The irony is that some of the groups benefiting from these loopholes, particularly rural farmers and medical providers, were also groups that were in fever of prohibition. Even the American Medical Association made a statement prior to prohibition that there was no therapeutic use for alcohol. And this juxtaposition symbolizes how prohibition would affect Americans in practice. When we think of prohibition, we tend to think of speakeasies, rum runners, moonshiners, and mobsters. We think of movies about Al Capone. We think of technological advances developed out of this period that gave rise to speedboats and NASCAR. Just the many ways that Americans got around the ban and got their booze anyway. And all the challenges that the federal government had with enforcing the ban. But the reality was that it wasn't simply that the government had trouble enforcing the ban. They were selective in how the ban was enforced. Upper classes, including political leaders, were able to comfortably enjoy their drinks. There are stories about President Franklin Delano Roosevelt sitting on the White House lawn drinking his cocktails. Other Americans were able to obtain alcohol from either their pre-prohibition reserves speakeasies, and other underground means, or through the loopholes mentioned earlier. But surveillance, arrests, and convictions targeted immigrants, 
people in poverty, and black Americans. This profiling led to a sharp increase in the inmate population in federal and state prisons. Sound familiar? Besides law enforcement crackdowns on these communities, vigilante help stepped in in the form of the Ku Klux Klan. The KKK focused on terrorizing black people, recent immigrants, and Catholics, raiding homes and roadside businesses in search of wine or liquor, and planting evidence for police to find later. Alcohol that was found was often taken and consumed by the Klan themselves. While the main targets of prohibition enforcement were groups that were looked down upon by American society, prohibition was deeply unpopular among most Americans due to the inconvenience of going around the existing laws in order to drink, the violence that erupted in communities due to the ban, and the feeling that too many government resources were being given to prohibition enforcement, while other social problems were not being addressed. So in 1933, the 21st Amendment, canceling out the 18th Amendment, and therefore ending prohibition, was ratified. And this great social experiment was now over. But there were some people in high places, particularly those involved in the enforcement of prohibition, who didn't want it to end and were now stuck without something to justify their existence. If not prohibition, then what? Enter the war on drugs. The war on drugs, as you can tell, has been going on for a long time. But there are also some much more positive, fun things that have stood the test of time. Let's celebrate as divisive issues. An awesome comics podcast from Flying Machine is celebrating episode 100. Congrats, guys. Ryan, Phil, Daryl, and Sly have decided to pop the cork and celebrate with Ultimates 3, one of the worst books ever. It's an excellent episode as always, so definitely recommend you check it out. Listen and subscribe to Divisive Issues on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player, or go to franzradio.com slash divisiveissues. And for all the wonderful podcasts of Flying Machine, Go to flyingmachine.network slash shows. Prohibition was far-reaching in its impact on the United States. It didn't only affect the populace that had to live under the 18th Amendment. It also greatly affected the structure and scope of U.S. government. Prior to Prohibition, law enforcement was mostly the purview of state and local government. While the Bureau of Investigation was founded in 1908, which was the precursor to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, the Bureau focused primarily on anarchists and sex trafficking and had a pretty narrow scope. But Prohibition greatly expanded the powers of the Bureau, and in so doing, the law enforcement powers of the federal government. In 1924, J. Edgar Hoover became the director of the Bureau of Investigation, which was called the FBI by 1935, and served in that role for nearly 50 years until his death in 1972. Under Hoover's leadership, the FBI became more expansive and organized, and both their scope and powers became far-reaching. These powers included surveillance powers, originally invoked in the fight against alcohol trafficking during Prohibition, which were controversial due to concerns about invasion of privacy. In the case Olmstead v. U.S. in 1928, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of warrantless wiretapping, 
which wasn't overturned until 1967. Also, due to prohibition, there was the expansion of the federal prison system. Prohibition ended in 1933, but the apparatus to fight alcohol trafficking was still in place. They just needed a new villain. Enter Harry Anslinger. Anslinger was the founding commissioner of Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was an agency within the U.S. Treasury Department. This agency was an early forerunner to the Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA. Anslinger began the assignment in 1930. He had previously been the assistant commissioner of the Bureau of Prohibition, which was a part of the U.S. Treasury Department, and before that, had spent 11 years working for a number of military and police organizations internationally in a quest to stop alcohol and drug trafficking. Now, at the time, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics focused on cocaine and heroin, but there was little to do on this front at that point in time. When Prohibition ended, Anslinger, who had amassed many friendships and connections all over Washington, started to sound the alarm on another drug, cannabis. Cannabis has a very long history, with use for fabric and rope dating back to the late Stone Age. It has its origins in Central Asia, but its cultivation and use spread out across Asia and the Middle East, and then Sub-Saharan Africa, and later the Americas. Uses were found not only for textiles, but also for ceremonial, medicinal, and recreational use, as it has depressant and psychotropic effects when ingested or smoked. Hemp, which is a strain of cannabis cultivated for textile and other industrial purposes, was popular among British colonists to what would become the United States. Hemp has a THC percentage of less than 1%. THC is short for tetrahydrocannabinol. It's the chemical component that gets you stoned. The use of cannabis in medications began in 1839 and cannabis medications could be found in U.S. pharmacies by the 1850s. This also brought about the first regulations on cannabis in a number of U.S. states. By 1905, seven states plus Washington, D.C. included cannabis specifically in laws regulating the sale of poisons. This meant that if sold, labels would need to include the harmful effects of the substance or require it only be sold at licensed pharmacies with a prescription. A number of other states did not list cannabis as a poison, but required it be labeled. With the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, cannabis, among other drugs, were required to be labeled on a federal level, and they were included in narcotics regulation. Recreationally, cannabis was an herbal substance with a largely regional yet growing appeal. In the 19-teens, cannabis was popular in the Southwest, as Mexican refugees escaping the Mexican Revolution brought it with them. At this point, there had been a long history of cannabis cultivation and consumption in Latin America, as it had been used on plantations by slave owners in Latin America and in the Caribbean to pacify African and native slaves. Then in the 1930s, cannabis became a popular drug of choice for musicians, particularly jazz and blues artists, and because of this, also became associated with black Americans. 
The jazz and blues scene, in particular, was a source of discomfort for many white Americans at the time because these genres of music were popular not only with blacks, but also with whites. And one of the few places where the races intermingled were in jazz and blues clubs. Such music was also played in juke joints, which were informal clubs, primarily in the South, where black people socialized. And at that time, these were places where black people congregated and where black people congregated raised the suspicion of white Southerners. Harry Anslinger was in charge of an agency that was seeing little work and there would be even less work after the end of prohibition. And regardless of what job you're in, if you're not busy, you're expendable. Anslinger needed something that would keep his agency busy. Cannabis was perfect because it appealed to his desire to justify the existence of his agency and because of the groups cannabis was most popular with at the time. The thing to understand about Harry Anslinger was that he was a hardcore racist and xenophobe, which shone through in how he would go on to frame the dangers of cannabis. But he also knew that using fear-mongering rhetoric in describing the effects of cannabis would make criminalization of the devil weed an easy sell to both his benefactors and to middle America. Anslinger once stated, quote, Reefer makes dark think they're as good as white men. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S. and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others." End quote. To further make cannabis seem like the drug of the scary them and stirring up anti-Mexican bigotry, he and his supporters referred to cannabis by the Spanish term for the herb, marijuana. This was picked up by the newspapers who began running sensational articles blaming marijuana for all manner of murder and mayhem. Anslinger sold the idea of criminalizing marijuana by painting a picture of the herb as extremely dangerous. He said, quote, you smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your brother, end quote. He wrote an article in American Magazine in 1937 hyping the dangers of cannabis, framing it through the lens of protecting white women and children from a deadly, corrupting foreign scourge. He also listed a number of cases from his gore file, as he called it, of deadly incidents purportedly caused by cannabis. The article read in part, quote, those who first spread its use were musicians. They brought the habit northward with the surge of hot music, demanding players of exceptional ability, especially in improvisation. Along the Mexico border and in southern seaport cities, it had long been known that the drug has a strangely exhilarating effect upon the musical sensibilities. The musician who uses it finds that the musical beat seemingly comes to him quite slowly, thus allowing him to interpolate improvised notes with comparative ease. He does not realize that he is tapping the keys with a furious speed impossible for one in a normal state." End quote. Ooh. This campaign was also carried out by the film industry. A film was released in 1937 based on the Anslinger article and had the same name as the American Magazine article, Marijuana Assassin of Youth. 
Like the article, the film focused on the purported deadliness of cannabis and adopted the tone of the stories from Anslinger's gore file. But this film was overshadowed by another propaganda film that was originally released a year earlier. Reefer Madness. Reefer Madness, originally titled Tell Your Children, was an educational propaganda film made by a church group and first released in 1936 that embellished the dangers of cannabis for dramatic effect. It was designed to be shown to parents as a warning of the horrors of cannabis use. Kind of like Dare Before Dare. The movie was about high school students who were coerced by drug pushers into smoking cannabis and the crimes they got involved in, such as manslaughter, attempted rape, and others, as they descended into madness because they were high. Shortly after the movie's original release, it was bought by exploitation filmmaker Dwayne Esper. It was tweaked, adding a few racy scenes, and it was distributed across the country under many titles, the most memorable of which is Reefer Madness. Anslinger wasn't just demonizing cannabis for kicks. He had a goal in mind. The Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, this was a bill that Anslinger himself drafted and was weaving its way through Congress. The Marijuana Tax Act would heavily regulate the importation, cultivation, possession, and distribution of cannabis through the use of federal government tax powers. Violation of the act would result in a fine of up to $2,000, close to $36,000 in today's money, and up to five years in prison. The bill was designed to end recreational cannabis use. Anslinger fought hard in favor of his Marijuana Tax Act, not only by spreading a racist and xenophobic narrative in the media about the supposed dangers of cannabis, but he also presented heavily curated information to Congress and to his friends in high places, who were of a similar mindset. Anslinger consulted 30 doctors to support his argument that cannabis was linked to violent crime. 29 out of 30 said there was no connection. So he used the message of one who agreed with him to confirm his biases and as additional ammunition to support his claims. Yes, smoking marijuana leads to all manner of violence. See, even this doctor tells us so. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Harry Anslinger went all out. He pulled out all the stops. He presented a number of criminal cases where people committed acts of violence, purportedly after having consumed cannabis. A murder of a police officer, the killing of a 10-year-old girl, and the clincher... The story of family annihilator, Victor Licata. Victor Licata was a 20-year-old Tampa, Florida man who killed his parents and three siblings with an ax in 1933. According to the press at the time, Licata was a deranged, marijuana-addicted Italian-American who hacked his family to death in a blackout because he was high. The idea of an unassuming, sane young man smoking this dangerous herb that makes you go crazy and axe murder your family made for some sensational headlines. But in reality, Victor Licata was a young man who had a long history of mental illness. He suffered from delusions, 
hallucinations, and psychosis. Also, a number of his relatives suffered from similar mental health issues and had histories of institutionalization, indicating that Victor's mental health issues stemmed from a genetic predisposition. Prior to the tragic murders, the local police sought to have him institutionalized, but his parents pleaded with authorities to allow him to remain under their care. Victor Lakata was never convicted of the murders, but was declared insane and committed to a mental institution where he lived out the remainder of his life. However, the facts did not get in the way of a good story. For the press, and especially for Harry Anslinger. Anslinger wrote in his American Magazine article, quote, In Florida, police found a youth staggering about in a human slaughterhouse. With an axe, he had killed his father, mother, two brothers, and a sister. He had no recollection of having committed this multiple crime. Ordinarily a sane, rather quiet young man, he had become crazed from smoking marijuana, end quote. This was a story he would tell anyone who would listen, and this imagery of a marijuana-fueled madman who murdered his family in a haze led to the passing of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. This new law wasn't without teeth. It had the apparatus originally built up for prohibition, the expanded police powers of the federal government, and the enlarged prison system to accommodate a new class of criminals, and it was all ready to be repurposed. As I mentioned earlier, this new law was designed to make recreational use of cannabis illegal. But in reality, it did much more than that. Harry Anslinger, in the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, ushered in the War on Drugs a war that has been waged by the American government on its own people for over 80 years and has led to untold death and destruction in its wake. The war on drugs has shattered the lives of individuals and families and has contributed to instability in multiple communities across the country and around the globe, in the past 100 years only rivaled by the Second World War and the Cold War. Next time, we'll discuss the effects of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. How did the drug war begin to unfold? And who paid the price? Thank you so much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are more like it. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and links are right there. If you subscribe, you can get new episodes once they're released, so you don't have to wait. Be sure to tell your friends about the show, if, and if you have any suggestions for other topics or want to discuss your thoughts on an episode, hit me up on Twitter at PotstirerCast. I'm Jay Cool. Let's fight for America's future, because freedom is not free. I give you the Incredible Flying Machine!